0: this episode, Benjamin Hardy.
1: I think it's very important to sit in your thoughts for a little bit every day and think about where you are. How'd you get here? You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world class leadership experts.
0: Welcome to Episode 7 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast. I'm Randy Lane. Today we're talking with Benjamin Hardy. I first came across him as an author on Medium, where he has over 40,000 followers. Benjamin's also been featured in publications like Fortune, The Huffington Post, and The New York Observer, to name a few. He's currently working on a PhD in business psychology at Clemson University. Benjamin writes a lot about the psychological differences between entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. And now our talk with Benjamin Hardy. <laughs> So welcome to the podcast. We're here with Benjamin Hardy. He is a lot of things that the way I came across him was a as a medium author. It's a medium.com is kind of a new long form article platform type of social media thing. He writes on all sorts of different subjects, but can you kind of give us a rundown of your background?
1: Yeah, so I am doing my PhD in business psychology. And so most of my writing is focused on kind of uh, is focused on psychology. My research focuses on entrepreneurship. So what I research is the psychological differences between entrepreneurs and wannabe entrepreneurs. Just dig into all of the differences right there. So I spend a lot of time reading books on entrepreneurship and basically study the psychology of leadership and optimal performance. So that's kind of what I think about, read about all day.
2: Interesting. So how, how did you decide to stumble upon this as a uh, education platform? I mean, why are you going to school for this and what, what's kind of the goal with learning about it?
1: Yeah, so in my opinion, probably most people with my own goals would probably not be good suited to go get a PhD. Just because honestly, I'm probably going to be an entrepreneur. Well, I already am in one way or another. For me, it just fit with my goals. I don't know. I think everyone's kind of got their own path. And so for me, this was just the best approach to achieving what I wanted to in the quickest way. Um, Being a student it's a good education and it's going to position me in in a different way than a lot of the other people that business consult like I'm going to but it also gives me a lot of time so my phd program like i'm i'm pretty obsessed with productivity and i've been able to i've been able to manage about a 10 hour work week with my phd program and so it gives me lots of time to write to consult to work on other projects while i'm getting my phd done so for me it's more strategic than anything else. It gives me a lot of time now and it's going to position me interestingly in a couple of years.
2: You know, I, it's interesting when you you say that you're focusing on productivity, which is something on this podcast we really focus on obviously, leadership development and productivity and and also entrepreneurship. So you say, what is the difference psychology-wise, I guess, between a entrepreneur and an entrepreneur or a sole proprietor versus someone who builds something? What, if, if you were to give us a synopsis on that, what would that look like?
1: Well, I'll just share with you the research I've done for my dissertation, just and I'll just be really quick, just because sure. I think it's a little different than what you'd read in a regular business book. So what I found is the two main differences. The first one's really obvious, is that most actual entrepreneurs have way higher levels of commitment to their goals, whereas wannabe entrepreneurs... There's an enormously significant difference in commitment. The other thing that I specifically studied is what I call the point of no return. Uh, basically, is what I did is I asked a bunch of entrepreneurs and wanna-be entrepreneurs the question: Have you ever had a point of no return experience? And actual entrepreneurs have significantly more often had that experience. And it looks uh, it's very different for all for all people. It's not always I quit my job. I made the leap. You know, for some people it was that. Well, for one guy, his brother committed suicide. And like that moment triggered in him, like this shift where he just had to live his life a different way. Hmm. Um, it kind of reminds me of the quote: "The moment you make a decision, the universe conspires to make it happen." <laughs> most entrepreneurs I've met have had this this moment where they just decided they're going to go for it, and most wannabe entrepreneurs have not had that experience.
2: Interesting, yeah. I uh, I would totally agree. I've been an entrepreneur the majority of my life. I started when I was twenty six, and and I can tell you that. I jokingly tell people that I'm psychologically unemployable at this point because I've been an entrepreneur and I've, uh, there is no return for me. I mean, I'm going to make it no matter mm-hmm. what a job is not an option. It hasn't been an option most of my life. So I agree, concur with your, your findings, I guess. And that is, you yeah. gotta find that commitment and just burn the bridge as they say and go for it.
1: Yeah. The cool thing is, is that Everyone who's had that experience, almost everyone, my my follow-up question if for the people who actually said they'd had that experience was what was your how is your life different after you had that experience? Nearly everyone said that they had higher levels of commitment, confidence. And so essentially life becomes easier to pursue your goals, to confront risks and fears because you've just made the decision. You're no longer wondering, you're no longer uncertain. So even though that doesn't mean life is easy, life is easier.
2: So when you talk about productivity, is that different in an entrepreneur than it is, say, someone who has a job?
1: I have no idea on that question. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't necessarily specifically study productivity from a research perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that productivity can be used by anyone, whether whether you're in a job or whether you're an entrepreneur. I think really is, is all it is, is applying certain strategies to use your time the most effectively. So I, I really don't know.
2: One of the things that I teach is the difference between internal motivation and external motivation. So people that typically have a job tend to be a little more not, you know, this is a blanket statement, obviously. But they tend to be a little more externally motivated, meaning sure. pe- their peers, their boss, their supervisor, people around them give them things to do and they're mm-hmm. they're motivated by timelines, by things that they gotta get done, so and so forth. Yep, totally. Where an entrepreneur is more internally motivated, nobody gets them out of bed. They get out of bed themselves. Nobody tells them when to be at work. They they know when to be at work, they know when how much they have to work, and they, they tend to find that motivation internally, which also is one of the reasons why they have a high desire to be an entrepreneur. Where people that have to be motivated externally, you know, tend to do better when they have someone who keeps them accountable to the stuff that they got to get done. Totally. Yeah, might be interesting.
0: So how would you motivate somebody who's externally motivated? As a leader, how would you make someone more internally motivated? Because I feel like uh, here at this job, I feel like you have certain projects you want for me, but you also don't stand over me and say these things need to be done. And you listen to ideas that I come up with, and that internally motivates me to want to come up with new and creative ideas, right? Sure. So any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think probably the two most obvious ways are to give your employees, like if you're a leader, I guess, give those who you follow more autonomy and give them a greater sense of control about what they're doing. Because motivation is linked a lot with where you're where you feel your control is, you know, like there's internal motivation. There's also an internal locus of control. And so if you feel like you have control over your situation, you're going to be more motivated. If you feel like your boss is just telling you everything, what you have to do and you don't feel like you've got a lot of control, you're not going to be motivated. (laughs) So give you more autonomy and help you feel like you have more control over your situation and what you can do about it.
2: Yeah. It's a balancing act. It's a balancing act between getting stuff done at work that needs to be done, but also having the autonomy to, to do it the way you want to do it and make it, make, make it meaningful. So, well, good. Well, you know, you mentioned at the beginning here that you are an entrepreneur right now. You have a, a business. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I do a couple different things. I do my own consulting. Uh, just right now I, I consult a lot of CEOs of different types of businesses all over the world. And then me and a friend of mine who has started several businesses, he and I are also developing a new concept that it's really in the opening stages, Mm -hmm. but it's eventually going to become – we're not actually sure fully what it's going to become. It's it's really in the beginning stages, but – it's, so it's gonna be a big pla- yeah. Well, it's a very <laughs> big platform, right? I mean, our our plan is for it to be similar to coaching concepts, but we don't necessarily want it to go that way. We we see it more like a brand. So my friend, he's done, he's been very successful in real estate investing, and also he has a tech startup that's done very well with real estate investors. Robert Kiyosaki is pretty big for this guy when you think about like rich dad, poor dad. Yeah. Kind of our current vision for this thing is to kind of create something similar to Rich Dad Port. It. It's not going to be real estate investing, but it's, it's going to be more than a book. It's going to be more than coaching. It's going to be a brand. And the mm. goal is to empower people to have more freedom in their life. Uh, we have no clue where it's totally going to go right now. We're still in the ideation process on that one. But in my own self, I do a lot of personal business and just consulting.
0: You you have a book. Would you like to kind of t- it kind of explores that subject? So would you like to kind of tell us about the book? Which one? The uh, take- s- slipstream time hacking.
1: Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have any specific questions about it? Or do you just want like an overview?
0: Just kind of an overview. It's kind of an interesting concept because you know that's the one thing that people don't seem to have enough of is time and it, that kind of addresses that those issues, right?
1: Yeah. There's so many different ways to look at it. But what I did with that book because I tried to kind of do a creative play on time. And so I'm I'm really obsessed with uh, Christopher Nolan, his movies Inception and Interstellar. And after I saw Interstellar, I just I I couldn't think about time the same way ever again. And what Interstellar does is it have either of you guys seen it?
0: Yes. Hmm.
1: So basically what Interstellar is about, it's about basically traveling through the universe and what time does at different places in the universe. And the idea is is that according to Einstein's theory of relativity, time is very different depending on where you're at in the universe. If you're on a planet, for example, that's moving much quicker than Earth, time is going to go a lot slower. So time is based on how fast you're moving through, through space. And so I tried to compare that to our lives. Like, if you have a goal that you want to go somewhere in, say, five years from now, you know, time is going to move at a certain rate. But if you shift that goal and you want to go to the same place in one year, time will go faster for you. I just kind of basically look at productivity from a different angle. Uh, mm-hmm. My goal is to slow down my time as much as possible to have as much of it as I can. It's a really kind of hard concept to explain in like a minute.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it makes sense, though, like because work expands to fill the space you give you give it. So if you have yeah, a deadline. Yeah, like Parkinson's Law. Right. So if you have a, if you have a deadline of a week, you're obviously going to be more on top of something than if, if it's a month or a year out.
1: Yeah. I mean, that that really right there is pretty much the idea It's just if you want to get something done. Actually, a quote by Peter Thiel really inspired me. It's how do you get your 10 year plan done in the next six months? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's really how you do it. Where do you want to be in 10 years? And rather than thinking that you're going to get there in 10 years, How do you get there in six months? My opinion and from what I've seen from, you know, just striving to actually practice productivity is you actually can get stuff like that done really quickly.
0: Yeah. So I know it's a large book with lots of stuff in there, but what what would you say is one takeaway someone listening to this um, podcast can take from that book and kind of say apply today and see some benefits?
1: The fastest way to increase a personal productivity is to start in your morning. I think most people's mornings start out very reactively. I think if most people actually genuinely looked at what they did in the first 10, 15 minutes of their day, it would be reactive rather than proactive. So most people, when they wake up, they look at their smartphone within 15 minutes. There's a lot of statistics on that. Over 80% of the population, first thing they do is look at their notifications. Hop on Facebook, look at their email. And what that does is it sets a tone of reactivity for your whole day. In my opinion, the fastest way to start to create the life you want to get is to block out as much time in your morning as you can for proactive stuff for me I jump into my journal the first thing I do because your mind is the most creative and fresh right when you wake up and just thought dump the goals that you have the things that you're striving for and you're going to get a ton of mental breakthroughs right there obviously exercise in the morning as much as you can do in the morning to learn and then be creative then for me at about I don't know depending on people's schedules because I know that some people have to get to work for me I start to be reactive after I've spent time learning and creating and for me that's allowed me to get a lot of ideas that have allowed me to move a lot quicker in my life than I thought I would. Just as a quick example, like I started blogging literally about a year ago. It was last May. The reason I started blogging is cuz I wanted to get a book deal for the book Slipstream Time Hacking. Like I wanted to learn how to publish it in a non-self published fashion, and so I started talking to book agents and just asking them how do I get a legitimate book deal? And they said, "Well, how big is your online platform?" I said, "Well, it's zero. I've I don't have one, you know, and they said, well, they said, well, from your current situation, it's going to take you at least five years. Like, hmm. That's just, that's just the reality. It's going to take you five years. And so that's what I think of when I think of slipstream time hacking is I think, okay, there's a five-year deadline. How can I shift that deadline to one year? Because if I can do that, then I'll have four extra years to live my life and right. go beyond that. And so what I did is I just, well, to make the story short, I'm a lot further now than the lady who was telling me this thought I would be in five years. <laughs> she said it took her five years to build a platform of 5,000 people. It took me less than a year to build a platform of 40,000 people. How, um, how'd you do it? There is a lot of luck involved, to be honest with you. I've written some articles that were way, went way more viral than I could have ever planned. Um, but a lot of it's just... Ge- so what Tim Ferriss talks about a lot is the idea of, you know, the minimum effect of dose. What is the smallest amount of something you need to do to achieve the desired result? So that's kind of how I look at life. And so what I did is I took an online course rather than getting coaching from these book agents. The online course was the John Morrow course. I don't know if you guys know who John Morrow is. I'm
2: not I don't. No.
1: He's like a really famous blogger. Anyways, okay. so all I did was I went through the first three modules. It was a $199 course. And what the, what the online course taught me to do is how to write really catchy headlines Mm-hmm. and how to hook readers within the first couple seconds. And because I've studied productivity self-help for a long time, like I already knew I could write really strong content, but I just wanted to learn how to write it in a way that would go viral. Mm-hmm. And so I spent 199 bucks on the course, spent three hours learning how to write really hot like titles basically. And then within a week or two, I wrote an article that has been read like 10 million times.
2: Wow. What, what uh, article so just, is that?
1: It's called Eight Things Every Person Should Do Before 8 a.m. Oh. Um, and that article opened up a lot of doors. It allowed me to get onto Huffington Post, Business Insider. And so I think what you do is you figure out a really cool productivity trick or whatever is rather than thinking super long term is what you do is you set really short term experiments. And that's kind of what I did is I, I entered a competition and wrote that article. It was just a short term experiment and it opened up doors that I couldn't. Plan for, Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of another productivity thing is I wrote another article and I I thought to myself, what's something I've never seen before? I've never seen a 10,000 word article filled with just insane personal development. Like if, and I wrote an article called 50 things like successful, happy, wealthy people do. And it was the longest article I've ever seen. And it was just jam packed. And I was like, this is just gonna be an experiment. My goal was to get 1 million views or sorry, 1 million shares. I had no idea what would actually happen. It took a week. And I was like, this is just an ex-, it, I was like this is just an experiment. You know, I'm just going to write this super long article. I'm going to spend a whole week on this rather than writing like three or four articles. I'm just going to write one article and just see what this one week experiment does. Right. And it I mean that article now, I mean, because of that article I met the guy who I'm now working with on the other startup, but that article became a book and it, that article alone got me probably 15,000 subscribers. Mhm. And so if you think most people would say, well, how long will it take me to get 15,000 subscribers? They'd probably think, well, it's going to take me a year or two. And then they're going to go through a really traditional model of how to get there. For me, I I was just thinking, I wasn't planning on getting 15,000 subscribers with that one article, but I was just like, I'm going to just try a really unique experiment. So that's kind of how I view productivity.
0: I think your approach works because, yeah, it does have those catchy headlines that, you know, BuzzFeed and other places use, but because you have your psychology background, it has good content, so it keeps people engaged, and they go, okay, I'll give it the medium heart, and I'll share it on to other people. I'll recommend it or whatever.
1: So I forgot where I heard it. I don't know if you get... Okay, so there's a book that Cal Newport wrote. He said... It, and the book is called So Good They Can't Ignore You. Have mm-hmm. you guys heard of that book? Mm-hmm. I've heard of it. Yeah. And he got that from a, a Martin Short. Like, yes. <laughs> he got that from a Martin Short interview. And so that's kind of how I view my, my articles is, is I want the article to be so good it can't be ignored. And so I think a lot of people don't, a lot of people, a lot of people admittedly don't like me. They don't like my writing. I have seen
0: some articles to that effect.
1: Yeah. But I think hopefully for me, I'm writing, I I want to write, you know, content that's so good that for people who it does resonate with, they can't ignore it. Yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of my approach.
2: So do you schedule time to write? Is it something that's a a habit or a, a structured process or you just wait for it to come to you?
1: definitely don't wait for it to come to you in my opinion more ideas come as you just as you just work so i try to write at least for a solid hour a day you know on on my schedule there's a lot more than that admittedly i can become distracted and i i try to read and stuff i do definitely try to write every single day at least one one clean focused hour but sometimes more
0: sure. so i've noticed you know there's lots of platforms you use but medium is it seems to be the biggest one for you Why did you decide on that and why do you think you kind of caught on there? So
1: I think Medium is a smart platform for anyone in, well, so I think there's over 3 million people writing there now. But I'm seeing a lot of businesses shift their platforms onto Medium. I mean, I I know of a lot of companies and even big blogs who have now just moved their blog to Medium because there's a lot of traffic there. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've... The reason I write there is because the readers actually turn into subscribers there. You have a lot more control of what you say, how you say it. There's no editorial except for yourself. At the end of your articles, you can invite people to, like you can actually link them to your website and say, if you liked this, subscribe to my blog. And for me, whenever I, in order to even make it more appealing, I say, if you subscribe to my newsletter, which is free, you'll get my two free Mm e-books. And so that you can't really do that at Fast Company or, you know, on Huffington Post. They don't let you do stuff like that. So I think I think medium people like to share there. They like different types of voices. If you read it, places like Inc and Fast Company and I write for those in a lot of ways, they all kind of feel the same. You know, I mean, the writing is there's a lot of cool different ideas, but at medium, you can totally speak in whatever voice you want. Yeah. And so I think that people dig that because it's a lot more real.
0: It's kind of a Meritocracy, like if the article's good, people will share it and see it. And I also like the the way it feels. It kind of feels like you got an, an article from your buddy out of the paper or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's an awesome platform. I I recommend it to everyone. I I don't know how. I guess it was just because I had a few lucky, really viral articles, but I have no idea. You know. Mm -hmm. why I why people read my stuff.
0: So we talked about your most popular one being the eight things everyone should do before 8am. So is that like your most popular one by far?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, the other one I was talking about the 50 ways one is pretty big, too. But yeah, I mean, that article on Medium alone, I think it's been read three or 4 million times, but it was the number two article on uh, the New York Observer for 2015, like the number two article for the whole year. I don't know how many views it had.
0: That's probably, crazy.
1: I mean it's it's kind of everywhere. That article has probably been published like at 500 different websites. I don't know where it's all published, but yeah, that article. I don't even know why people like it so much to be honest with you.
2: Are are the royalty checks rolling in?
1: From those websites?
2: <laughs> yeah, you wish, right?
1: I wish. No, hopefully. I mean, I, when I first started, I just allowed syndication. I'm okay with people syndicating my stuff, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in the information distribution, but I do have a requirement that people leave the little bit at the bottom of my articles that say, like, if you really liked this, please subscribe to my blog, and you'll get my free my free ebooks. So if people really like the article, then at least they've got a link to my website, and they know that they can get more of my stuff for free.
0: Yeah. So it's kind of just about putting yourself out there.
1: Yeah, I think that's a smart take for people who are really just starting. I mean, it's probably not the best strategy uh, if you're already well established. Right. But at least for me, that was a good quick way to just kind of spread myself through a couple really viral pieces. So
0: let's talk about some of the parts of that article because there's eight really good tips. Um, Which one would you say you think is the most important for you?
1: Well, I mean, I I think a few of them are completely fundamental. I think a few of them, honestly, you could probably kick out if you needed to. Like for me, obviously, seven, eight hours of sleep, I feel like that's like an essential part of life. I think if maybe other people can get by with less, but I think actually getting good, healthy sleep is like essential. Probably just the prayer and meditation one. I didn't actually put journal writing in there, but that's kind of a piece of my prayer and meditation is just what, what I said earlier, just getting myself in a mental place where I can just thought dump and be inspired.
0: Why do you think meditation is catching on? This seems to be all over businesses now as well. It used to be just kind of a self self help thing, but now, you know, businesses are recommending it. CEOs are doing it stuff like that. Why why is that catching on?
1: Because it leads to clarity. I think a lot of people are just running through life and they don't take enough time to just stop and think, who am I? What am I doing? What should I be doing? I mean, at least in my mind, I may approach meditation in a totally different way than most people. For me, I, I I do it in a more of an active way. For me, it's more like pondering and actually writing down and reflecting. I mean, it's a slightly different approach than maybe the typical meditation. But I think it's very important to sit in your thoughts, sit alone in your thoughts for a little bit every day and think about where you are. How'd you get here? Remember how you got here and think about where you really want to go. I mean, I think it's and a lot of meditation I know is kind of trying to kind of just let go of everything but for me it's just sitting in my thoughts and getting a lot of clarity I think I think people are picking up on it because I think the world is challenging us now to be a lot more creative and thoughtful entrepreneurship a big thing now Creativity's a big thing now podcasts I mean our kind of business world is kind of becoming a, a more of a thoughtful approach and so I think med- meditation is a really natural way to do that
2: So. One thing that we do, and I'm going to pivot just a little bit here, on every one of our podcasts, we ask our guests, share an example of someone that you've been around that's a, an incredible leader, either a personal story or what you think are examples of incredible leadership, and then obviously do the opposite. And that is, have you ever worked with, been around, associated with somebody who is a poor leader? What would that look like? And what, what does that exemplify in, in terms of your mind?
1: The first example of a good leader is this. This is... This is probably not going to be the case for every every situation but in this particular situation i was kind of i was serving a mission trip for for my church and the leadership actually changed there's a leader over this entire mission and that leader was there for 3 years and he got he got released essentially and a new leader came in And what this leader did was the first thing he did is he actually sent home like 30 people who just were not really being effective missionaries. Hmm. uh, Just shocked us, like sent just sent 30 people home. And it just totally was a wake up call. And it radically shifted our culture. Just kind of like, all right, there's been like, you know, lackluster behavior going on. We're going to we're going to end that right now. And this is probably extreme. It probably wouldn't work, you know, maybe say like a, a new CEO comes in, you know. But what's crazy is, is like our results, like within three to six months, it's like doubled as far as just the like the type of outreach we were doing, the help we were giving. It just totally shifted everything. And it was a wake up call and it was just like a, a complete culture shock and then culture shift. I thought that that was an amazing example of leadership, just someone coming in and just kind of throwing down the gauntlet, you know, mm-hmm. and it, pro- it was also his personality, but I've thought about that experience a lot, just how I can personally apply that in my own life. Like whether, I don't know, just the different situations I'm in, when you come into a new situation, you know, if you're in a leadership position, how can you immediately get rid of the stuff that's holding people back? Like what can you immediately do to stop the things that are detrimental, so that you can actually start focusing on growth. I, I thought that was amazing.
2: Now, um, what would be interesting, though, is that the 30 people that got sent home, if they were on this podcast and we asked them, what's an example of great and poor leadership? They'd you probably th- say
1: him. They'd <laughs> yeah. say he's
2: poor leadership because he came yeah, in. No, and- I,
1: think, I think that's really interesting, and I think, I think that's why— I don't think that there is an exact playbook for leadership, to be fully honest with you. I think how you would lead really well is different than how I would lead really well. And I think we could still take the same company really far. But I think you would do it very different than me, and I think that that's completely fine. But yeah, I think as maybe an example of bad leadership, I definitely won't say names, but kind of going to... uh... (laughs) So what Randy was saying about kind of being an employee, I have definitely been in a position where... Just to be fully honest, with you, even in my PhD program, I feel like my own personal autonomy has been quite squelched where I was very motivated when I got into my PhD program and I was like flying, going way faster than probably most other people. But I feel like over time, my own personal freedom has been very constrained. Uh, just my ability to kind of decide how fast I go, the direction I take my projects, it's just been kind of latcheted down and I feel like I've got less freedom to make my own personal choices and how fast I can get things done. And so my own motivation levels have dropped dramatically, uh, or at least they did for a time. You know, I've addressed it and had some good, honest conversations, and I think you can fix situations like that if you're if you're able to have quality conversations. But that was a moment where, like six to eight months, I was very unmotivated, and I felt like it was because of you know leadership relationships.
2: So in a traditional model, and and I would say that education is still very much traditional. It's shifted. Oh, oh yeah.
1: It's a, yeah, I think it's a horrible model, I'll yeah. be honest. <laughs> well,
2: I, I do too. So we're on the same page there. It's, it's very much factory-driven where we put kids in a certain group in a certain classroom and we, we test them all the same and we pass them based on standardization, not individualism. And oh. as they grow, we, we charge more for the same stuff. And so it, in a traditional model, it's set up to squelch freedom and creativity. And, uh, e- even though educators would disagree with that, the traditional framework in which they have to work in, it reinforces traditional behavior, things like medium and other things that we're working on right now outside the online education process and everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, let you speed up at your own pace, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. It's, it is very suffocating and very painful for someone like me. Like, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I have ADHD. I definitely I like to move at my own speed, and I like to do things differently. I like going through back doors and side doors, and just I like trying to find the fastest way to do things. And you think
2: that's generational? You think it's because of your age and the group that you're in, or do you think it's? You I know, don't know.
1: Maybe it's because I've spent way too much time studying productivity. To be honest with you, I have no. <laughs> I I have, I have no idea. I have a bent towards. I probably have an unhealthy bent towards quantity over quality. I still, I still really try to focus on quality, but I still, to me, I really like the quote, "Done is better than perfect." I mean, I kind of live by that idea that quantity is the is the greatest pathway to quality. And so, for me, I'm totally okay making mistakes along the way and sometimes looking like an idiot. I just feel like there was a, you know, a long stretch of time in my program where I was trying to do things slightly alternatively, and you know, that just does not go over well in hmm. in, in traditional academia. And so I I just felt like I had zero power and I kind of just gave up all motivation for a long time. I was just like, I'm just going to do what they tell me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's like the worst thing in my world.
0: I feel like good leadership kind of is at the front kind of leading the way and is at the back kind of supporting. But in the middle, you know, allows the employees to kind of move how they need to in order to get the end result.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I, I think so. Where the quandary comes in is when you're not getting the results. How, how do you give autonomy and freedom to employees if the results aren't being met? And that's mm-hmm. the balancing act between that traditional model set up to focus on here are the things that we have to get done. Employees want autonomy to do what they want to do. And it works great as long as we're hitting results. Right. If you don't hit results, then unfortunately, something's got to give.
1: I think that because I, I, I do consult a lot of CEOs. Um, and one of the main themes I always see is that most of the CEOs – Openly admit that they're way more involved in the weeds of their employees' work than they should be, and that then the, then they want to be. A lot of these people just they can't help but try to control the situation, even though what they really want is more freedom to have space and to create and to not look at emails and to not go over things. Just an ex- an example. One of the guys I work with, he says, you know, he reviews all of his em- employees' work and you know, or their projects, and what he'll find is that in, one in about twenty he'll find a pretty glaring error that he doesn't want to see. And I asked him, I said, all right, so how much of your time is this actually taking to like review these 20 projects, you know, every month or whatever. And I mean, he said it took him a big portion of his work day. And I said, all right, so what would, what's worth more to you to miss that one error and to have all the free time of those other 19. So basically what he determined was is that he would rather be uninformed he's experimenting with it but he would rather be uninformed about everything going on and he realizes that he's going to miss certain things but to him, the benefit of all of the time is worth way more. And he's, so he's given his employees a lot more responsibility. He's had to recreate a new expectation for them that he's not going to do their aspects of their work. And so I think that I think you can do things so that you can reestablish expectations, maybe with employees who aren't getting the results, or you could be like my the other crazy leader and just drop them. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it's culture. You know, you can reestablish expectations, or you can create a culture where that just doesn't fly. And I think a lot of it's the leader's fault if the leader lets stuff like that fly, then he's, he's perpetuating a culture where others just let him or her take responsibility for the employee's problems.
0: Mm -hmm. I had a situation where I was thrown into a leadership role, didn't have much leadership experience. And I came into a team that had very little output. And I, I walked in and said, well, I want to do A, B, and C more than what you've been doing. And I don't, and I, I want these done and I don't, I don't really care, and everyone was obviously kind of annoyed with me. Totally. And so I kind of took a step back and I said, okay, instead of doing ABC this week, you know, for this week, I'm, we're going to make sure that we get A done. And then if we're good with A, next week we'll do A and B until we get to a point where it's a manageable workload. So I think setting expectations—if you're not hitting the marks, if your employees aren't hitting the marks—then maybe as a leader, you know, stepping back and saying. What's an attainable level for you, for your crew? And then also the other takeaway I had from that was getting to know the people on my team so that they could be put in the most effective places. Before, I was just saying, this needs to be done. You know, everybody do the same amount of work. When I could could say, okay, you do this work and you do this work because that's your passion and what you're into, and it's going to be a better overall product.
2: Yeah, but leadership, one of my favorite books that's out is Leadership and Self-Deception. And I think that's a big issue, is that leaders self-deceive themselves. Our intent is invisible to other people. And we believe that by saying what we want done, we're actually communicating. But communication doesn't happen unless the other person gets it, understands it, and does it. And that's where the big gap is. So many times, I mean, so many times we, as leaders, see things turning out differently than what they actually do. And so we... That, that fundamental attribution error, we kind of place the blame outside of ourselves and we look at things differently and that's a real issue. It's a real problem.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite books is actually called, uh, extreme ownership. It's by yeah. Jocko Willink. And, and basically what he says is that there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that, that's how he takes it. And he comes from a military perspective. You know, he, I think he was a Navy SEAL or, mm-hmm. yeah. And, I think that that quote's completely true. there are no bad teams, only bad leaders, and that good leadership empowers the followers to take extreme ownership as well, that they are just as that if something goes wrong and the leadership says who was it, everyone's willing to say it was my fault. Yep. that everyone takes hundred percent responsibility for the success of something.
2: Wonderful. Well, let's pivot one last time. And that is, tell us about your personal life. You mentioned right before we get on the call that that you're a married, foster parent, that kind of stuff. How, tell us a little bit about your, your personal, your personal life.
1: You know, so we live here in Clemson. Uh, I'm doing my PhD, spending most of my time writing. But one of the things that I've found is that if I don't have really clear and strict timelines on when I'm going to work, that I'm very non-present with my wife and kids, you know, because we live in a digital world. It's very easy to just wander to your computer and get lost in medium or get lost on, you know, I mean, in a million different things. And you can maybe even feel like you're being productive because it's slightly work related. What I've done recently is just said, you know, and I've actually kind of broken this today but I usually don't work after 2 p.m. I mean that's just a really hard and fast rule for me. 2 p.m. my time. So I'll you know how how my family life and my personal life goes yeah. is I wake up generally 5:30 or 6 o'clock work till 2 and then after 2 o'clock I don't I have my computer locked away and even generally my phone and I'm just with my wife and kids during the school year they get out of school at 2 o'clock that's why the time is 2 mm. um, and we just we just hang out I mean, there's a lot of cool things to do here. There's a lot of hiking trails. We've got friends with swimming pools. My kids are obsessed with Star Wars. Like everyone's. (laughs) Yeah, everyone's obsessed with Star Wars. Um, (laughs) And so, I don't know, just a lot of hanging out. We put our kids, one of our core principles has always been like, we didn't know this, but the first night that we had the kids, we were really shocked that they slept they slept so long. We put the kids to bed at like seven or eight and we were expecting them to wake us up. but we woke up and we're looking at our clock and like it was like seven, eight in, in the morning and they start finally woke up. We, we got on Google and realized that you know kids that are like four and six years old sleep 12 hours. We didn't know that. <laughs> and so so what we've done ever since we've had them and we've had them for 18 months is we we, we literally put them to bed at 6 pm. And then, so I hang out with them from 2 to 6, and then they sleep from 6 to 6. And we just, we wake up around the same time they wake up. And what that has done is it's freed up our nights for me and my wife to hang out, read. We, we go on date nights a lot. We'll have people just come to our house and watch Netflix at our house while our kids are sleeping. And <laughs> so, I mean, it's awesome because our kids are never tired. We have the nights to ourselves. I don't know. So that's kind that of our life. Good. You know, I mean, we... We, we go on a lot of road trips.
0: You know, it's kind of interesting. Um, Chip wanted to pivot and talk about your personal life. And I was like, I really want to talk about your article on overcoming addiction. Because I think oh. this plays directly into it. Is that, you know, we're addicted to our social media, our phones, work. And I am so guilty of this. And I was like, you know, maybe I can talk with him and figure out the best way to kind of nip this in the bud. I've started some stuff here at work to kind of help myself with addiction. First one is a app on my computer called self-control and you put in the websites you don't want to go to and then you push start and it actually at a root level blocks those websites. So if you quit the app, if you restart your computer, it's not going to take effect. You're still going to be blocked out and you set the time. So, so I'll come in and I'll check Facebook, you know, I'm still addicted that way, but then I'll say like three hours I'm blocked. And then I've been batching emails. So like I will respond to emails, you know, first thing when I get in, And then I will kind of just cut off email until lunch. And then maybe around lunch, I'll check again. Maybe again before the end of the day, I'll check email. But blocking out big periods of time. I still struggle at home because if something comes up and and you're like, oh, I should probably take care of that before tomorrow. Or, you know, I'm reading this really good Medium article by Benjamin Hardy and I just really want (laughs) to keep reading it. And, you know, next thing you know, you look around the room and the wife's on the cell phone, the kids are on the iPads. You know, I'm sitting there with an iPad and I go, what has happened to us?
1: How did this happen? Yeah. (laughs) I think we're all addicted. I think we live in an an age of addiction and kind of to go to your idea, because willpower is a really sexy topic nowadays, is I think willpower is not... If you ask anyone who's trying to overcome like a serious addiction to alcohol or something like that, any therapist or person who's gone through that will say willpower doesn't help. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is is creating external situations that force you to act in the way you want to. You know, you've got that app. Mm -hmm. And so kind of actually this might throw off your comment earlier about internal and external motivation but I think the smartest people with internal motivation understand the need for external motivation so for me I do everything I can to put external things in place to force me to act in the way I want just one example is is I leave my my computer in my backpack in my car after two o'clock just so I don't wander to it because I totally will and so it's creating an environment where it forces you to act in the way you want to yeah, I mean that's. I could talk to you for hours about that article. Like, <laughs> I'm because I think addiction's a huge thing. I'm I'm totally addicted to so many things. I'm addicted to the computer. I'm addicted to sugar. I'm addicted to. I mean, I think we live in a world of addiction, and so yeah. I think that there are. I think that there are much more effective ways to overcome addiction than people are talking about.
2: Addiction is an emotional issue, not a logical issue. So it's really rooted in. Why are we addicted has, in my opinion, goes to the amygdala first, which is meaning. I mean, the, the uh, emotion that's tied to it, not logically, because we know logically we shouldn't do these things. So it's not about right. learning more having more knowledge of how to beat it. It's the emotional side that keeps us connected, coming back to it. That's why the average Facebook user checks it 6.5 times a day. It's an emotional addiction to the fear of loss, the fear of missing out, the fear of, of missing something. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we have this emotional fear of missing out on something that other people are doing that we should be involved in. And it's I would a,
1: guess that people check Facebook way more than that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, that was the average. The, the
2: average is 6.5 times a day. Now, I think the younger
0: you are, the, the higher the frequency. Yeah, it, <laughs> totally. it, it is ridiculous. It's crazy. Unless you're my mom. You know, I think she's checking it about 60 times a day. Well, I like you had like kind of a a framework, like a step by step. Um, I kind of wrote it down because I thought it was interesting. I was thinking about this through the paradigm of like, okay, another addiction for me besides the social media and the just checking on stuff is eating healthy, right? Most people can identify with that. So through that paradigm, I'm saying invest up front. So you're saying like, I'm going to do this. This is something I'm definitely going to take on with myself. And then you make it public, right? So you're okay, saying, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to tell everybody that I'm trying to lose weight. So this is something that I can be held accountable to later. If I say I'm going to do this, you know, you see people with their, their before and after pictures online and stuff, and then setting a timeline. So like having a goal, because, you know, in my case saying, you know, I'm not going to eat terrible stuff for me doesn't really work unless I say by this date, I want to weigh this much or whatever. And then several forms of feedback and accountability, like having people around you to kind of keep you accountable to your goals is totally important, especially for that you know, I love doing kind of group workouts, kind of CrossFit type thing, because you see the same people every day, they can say, hey, you weren't here on Tuesday. What the heck, man? Well, that's, you know? an,
1: that's like, that's that's an external situation, right? Right. Like if you went to the gym without those people, you'd probably right. you'd either not progress or you might not even go.
0: Right, and then <laughs> yeah. the, the best one I thought was they're removing environmental stumbling blocks, you know? So like, this is a perfect example last night. I'm looking in the fridge and I see a bunch of eggs and Turkey bacon, and I'm like, this is gonna be a good, healthy sort of healthy protein filled meal, but then in the back of the fridge, I see my wife has bought like a roll of cookie dough, and I'm thinking, I really want to tear into that later if she if that wasn't there, I would have you know I wouldn't even think about it or you 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 know you're cruising through the TV and you see a commercial for Sonic and they advertising their milkshakes and you're like, I kind of want a milkshake now. So yeah, yeah, if you just remove all that from your house in the, in the case of the, you're talking about, um, technology distractions, you know, keep your laptop in your car, you know, that's how you do it. I'm like, this is a good framework. I want to try and apply it to as many, things in my life as I can that I need help with, for sure.
1: No, I think it's helpful. And kind of just going back to the idea of uh, investment, one of the... So a really good story. This idea is I I have a friend who... He's like a health coach, as funny as it says, but he's always been out of shape. He's tried like every diet. Isn't that kind of funny?
2: <laughs> but <laughs> Fat but health um, coach. he's
1: tried like every diet, and like he is so knowledgeable about health and nutrition. And like, I mean, he he practices what he preaches, but he, he just... For some reason, he could never get in shape, and he's like he works hard in the gym. He he's experimented with every diet, but what he did was, as far as the investment up front is, he decided that he was going to go for an Ironman. Just I mean, he hired a coach, so that's part of it. That was part of his investment. Together, they they decided to create a goal that was way outside his his current perspective of what he could do. Mm-hmm. And what he realized is that he himself, he, he had a really poor relationship with commitment. And so he just didn't trust himself to commit to anything. And so he stopped committing to anything. You know, he, he knew that if he said he was going to do something like, I'm not, I'm not going to eat sugar today. He knew that he would break his own commitment to himself. He had developed a lack of trust to keeping his own word to himself. But in order for him to overcome that, he needed to make a really big commitment, which involved some form of investment. What he calls it is, uh, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of Evan Pagan. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of him? So what Evan Pagan talks about, he's a productivity guy. He talks about inevitability thinking. And basically what inevitability thinking is, is that you create the conditions around you that make the achievement of your goal inevitable. And so what he did was, is he committed to something really big. You know, he invested in it. So he spent four or five hundred bucks signing up for an Ironman one year out. He hired a coach just straight up out of the gate. Uh, and then, yeah, then he took pictures of himself on Facebook without his shirt on you know? <laughs> and he had a gut. I'll be honest with you, you know, is what he said is, is like, I called into being the results I wanted by creating the, the conditions that made it inevitable. You know, he hired a coach. He got an extreme accountability feedback loop. He put himself out there on Facebook. He signed up for the race. What's crazy is now he's super ripped and he was, he was like, and it happened really quick. I mean, he got ripped so fast, but the way it is, he changed his conditions. He changed his environment.
2: There you go, Randy. That's think, what I you think gotta it's a do. Cool yep. An I mean, Iron Man me. a year from today.
0: I'll tell you what, like, so there was a fitness challenge at the gym. Take a shirt off, let's put
1: a
2: picture of
0: it uh, up don't on want, Facebook. You don't wanna see that. <laughs> I there was this uh this weight loss challenge at the gym and, and I totally signed up for it. I paid the money. It was one of those the winner gets the pot type of thing. So it's like, well that's a good incentive, a lot of money. And I totally didn't lose any weight. So you know
1: It doesn't like, forever I guess.
0: But i I think something like, you know, signing up for a competition or something could definitely be, you know, you're gonna look really stupid if you get to a competition and you haven't trained one bit, you know?
2: Well that's why it, it's it's that that future thing. That's why people lose weight before they go on a, a cruise or something, is because they know they don't want to be embarrassed when they get there or yeah. whatever the case might be. It's that yeah. it's that mo what's down the line that's going to keep me motivated to keep working at it right now. And then there's pure gluttony when you're on the cruise. So it's
1: like <laughs> get Well to has the there cru- ever been anything you've done that has helped you as far as just actually joining motivating the
0: you? joining the armed forces. And having my job rely on the fact that I have to maintain certain standards.
2: Uh, see, that's external motivation. That's what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> I tell you, that's why I do CrossFit, because it's the group thing. I mean, I, I probably could do any sort of a, a group workout, but the, I, I love the idea of, like, I have to show up at this time. I've signed up for it. People are going to call me and say, where were you if I'm not there? I walked in day before yesterday after not being there for a week, and about four or five people were like, where have you been? You know, where are you? It's <laughs> yep. like, okay. So that's, that's a good motivator.
2: Well, we, we're running out of time, so I'm going to ask you one last question. This is what we'll end with, and that is, you know, one year, three year, five year, What what's your plan? Where where are you headed? What, what's your your big, audacious goal that you have out there?
1: Yeah, so uh, a fundamental belief I have is that the the best things in your life you cannot plan for, and that's what I've found in my own life, is that the best opportunities that come are ones that come, like, totally out of left field. So to be honest with you, I have... Pretty I I don't have an exact clue where I'm gonna be in mm-hmm. three to five years. I'm gonna be doing broadly speaking, I'm gonna continue to be writing uh, and consulting. I mean I plan on being highly influential in in the kind of self help leadership space. You know, I, I'm certain by then, three to five years from now I'll have a couple really big books published. And, you know, my platform will be really big. But aside from that, I'm completely open to the doors that are gonna open that right now I have no clue exist. The relationships that are going to appear into my life, the mentorships, the friendships, the opportunities, I have no clue. But I do know that I'll continue to write more. I'll continue to learn more, hopefully serve and help people to overcome addictions and, you know, improve their life. That's something I'm very committed to is becoming the best person I can and the best teacher I can be and the best thinker I can be. And hopefully I can put things out into the Internet world and into just the people I communicate with that actually do create change. That's something I'm fully committed to and growing that and being serious about learning how to leverage the platforms and stuff on the internet to spread that as far as I can. And obviously, my family, we're probably going to be living in Florida by then. Uh, We're going to move to Orlando after that because my wife's obsessed with Disney. And (laughs) I don't know, we may have some more kids by then. We're probably going to hopefully adopt these three. Aside from that, just hopefully living a life of balance. To me, that's very important.
2: Well, I have complete faith that it'll happen for you. You seem to be an incredibly solid guy and obviously you're pretty talented at what you do. And so I I think anything you decide you're going to do is probably going to happen. I'm not even hesitant when I say that. I think it will happen for you.
1: That's uh, that's genuine. Thank you. Yep.
2: Well, thank you so much for being on our show. We really appreciate it. And we'll follow you on Medium. We'll, we'll promote you on our stuff. Hopefully you do the same for us. and, and yeah, happy to. Let's stay in touch and keep working together. And hopefully in the future, once your next big book comes out, we're going to call you again and interview you again. And so continue to stay in touch. Well, seriously, thanks. It was fun. Yeah. All right. Cool. Very See nice you. to meet you. <laughs>
1: The High Performance Leadership Podcast is also sponsored by Principles of High Performance Leadership, the book by Chip Wilson. The first 100 people to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast get the book for free. That's right, free book. Go to 360solutions.com for more information.
0: All right, Chip, so can you kind of explain to me what a high performance workshop is?
2: Most of the time, organizations are struggling uh, on one thing or another and they really don't know how to put it all together and so we have this two-day intensive workshop we call it a high performance workshop that really has a framework and that framework helps organizations understand what are the principles of highly successful organizations what do they look like what? And, and then we move into assessing step two is assessing the organization we have seven critical steps that we look at we help our uh, participants that are in the workshop really kind of create a benchmark of where their current organization is is we move to step three which is clarifying their strategy and helping them think through their strategy and is it a good strategy can they are can they change it and how do we clarify it and then step four is we then start helping empower them on leadership and help them understand what does a high performance leader do on a daily basis and then step five is those leaders then build very high performing teams of individuals and and really focused on getting the leaders and the teams to execute on the strategy. And so, so
0: this two-day workshop takes them through the entire process.
2: It does. And so when you leave the workshop, you'll leave with a, a framework, of a, a plan that you can go back into your organization and really take this and understand what are our principles, assess our organization on seven different critical areas, create that baseline, clarify our strategy... And then start changing behavior of our leaders and our teams to execute on that, on that clear strategy that we have in place now. And who's this, who's this workshop for? Anybody in a leadership role. So it doesn't matter if you're a for-profit, non-profit. It doesn't matter if you are responsible for getting results in your organization, especially if you're responsible for getting results through other people. This workshop is designed for those individuals. And so if I'm looking for more information, where can I go? Go to 360solutions.com. And in there, you'll see everything that you need to know about the upcoming workshops all around the U.S. And we have some actually in other parts of the world as well. But there's probably one coming close to you uh, sometime this year. Uh, And the information's on there. The cost is extremely reasonable. And the reason why we keep the cost low is because we want people to understand the framework. Once you understand the framework, then, you know, we can help you along the way of implementing those things.
0: So if you've enjoyed this podcast and all of our leadership tips and tricks that we've been giving you, this is kind of the next step.
2: Yeah. The next step is is to say, you know what, this is great information. I really want to see how I can uh, apply some of these principles to help my organization grow. This two-day workshop is is kind of the starting point. It's kind of the immersion into the overall concept of high performance. Uh, As you as a leader and then really as how the organization and leaders work together to to build a high-performance company
0: All right, I'm joined in the studio right now by Talia She's the director of our SP network here at 360 solutions and we are talking about high-performance workshops We've talked about these on other podcasts and now we have some scheduled and we're kind of pleased to talk about them Can you tell us about our upcoming DC workshop?
1: absolutely we're really excited it is going to be um, hosted by scott keeper with cobra leadership development it will be on july 14th and 15th if you need to look into it you actually can go to 360solutions.com forward slash events and we have information also about hotel any kind of arrangements that you need just let us know (laughs) you.
0: Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Make sure and subscribe via iTunes, give us a rating, and leave us a review. Tell everyone you know to do the same thing. The more subscriptions, ratings, and reviews we get, the higher iTunes rates us. Visit our website at hpleadershippodcast.com, tweet at us at twitter.com slash 360 underscore solutions, and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 360 solutions, LLC. That's all together, no spaces. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.